Good morning. It's good to be here. There is a popular old gospel song that most of us with gray hair know really, really well. We sang it at our last men's retreat. And I love it. The first couple of stanzas go like this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Do those verses match up with what the Bible actually says about the believer's connection to this world in which we find ourselves? And to heaven? I believe the answer is yes, they do. Right now. But based on all that the Bible has to say about God's intention to redeem all things, I believe that that song that I love so much and many others like it are a couple of verses short of telling the full story. This morning and next Sunday, we're going to take a closer look at what the Bible says about His, about God's intention for this place called earth and for all of His physical creation in eternity. And we're going to look at how His plan for this place is tied to His plan for heaven, His dwelling place. Last week, I mentioned four key elements, design elements in God's original intention for His creation. Place, image, agency, and relationship. This week and next, we're going to talk about place, about God's design to redeem what the curse imposed on this place. The first thing that we need to be very, very clear about if we're talking about the place made new is that this world, this corrupt, corrupt, cursed, sin-filled world as we know it right now is certainly not our home. And we should not feel at home in it if we do something is very badly wrong with our perception of things. I would respectfully submit that some who have been writing and preaching on this now again popular topic of heaven and eternity over the last few years are understating this critically important point. The Bible is very forceful about this. And when the Bible is very forceful about something, we need to be careful about redefining terms so that that forcefulness is watered down, so the edge is taken off of it. Hebrews 11 says that even when Abraham came into the, into the land of promise in obedience to God's command, he lived there as an alien, as in a foreign land, for he was looking for a city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. A couple of chapters later in Hebrews 13, it says, here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. At the end of Philippians 3, Paul speaks of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their appetite, who set their mind on earthly things. And then he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Colossians 3, verses 1-4 through 4 says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind 
on the things above, not on the things that are on the, on the earth. For you have died and your life, if you belong to Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed, unveiled with Him in glory. See, our citizenship is emphatically not here. We are eagerly waiting for a place that's far, far better than what we see around us now. And the single most important thing that we know about our real home, about the place of our real citizenship, is that it is where Christ is. That's true now. That will be true forever. If you die today, you will be where Jesus is now. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that while we are still in these mortal, decaying, earthly tents, we are of good courage and we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's not the eternal state of things, beloved, because when we are with the Lord in eternity, we will not be absent from the body. We will have eternal spiritual bodies like Christ does. But whether God keeps us here a little while longer... <laughs> or takes us to where He is, that's His business, not ours. Either way, Paul says, we make it our goal always, at all times, to be pleasing to Him. Why is it important for us to know that we're not from around here? The better question is, how do we as Christ followers live in light of that amazing knowledge? Again, Hebrews 11 cuts right to the chase. It talks about the cloud of faithful witnesses who have already gone before us. That's what that whole chapter is about. Verses 13 through 16 say this, all of these died in faith, all of these saints before died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, the promises, having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And then he says, and the country they're seeking isn't the one they came from. They could have gone back there. Verse 16, he says, as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heaven, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Remember that. He has prepared a city for them. Beloved, the problem with the modern church is not that we are so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. It's that we are so earthly minded that we are no heavenly good. And because of that, we're also no earthly good. We do not need a theological redefinition of terms that makes us more attached to this world. We need to be less attached to this world. Knowing that you are a stranger, knowing that you are here to represent a kingdom that's not here yet, eliminates a thousand distractions and useless encumbrances and makes it very, very clear what you are to be doing while you're here. And that is pursuing and advancing the kingdom that's coming. So where is this new eternal place if it's not out there beyond the blue. 
Where will we spend eternity? Now, I'm talking at this point to believers in Jesus Christ. If you had not trusted Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior, the one who, who alone paid the, the eternal penalty for your sin and every other, the, the only payment for any man's sin, God says that unless you do so, unless you trust Him before you die, you're headed to the place of eternal separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power. It's not a good place to be. It's the place that God in the, in the Scriptures calls hell. Not many people use that word from the pulpit anymore these days. But the Bible uses it and it's a place of fire and brimstone. Okay. If you haven't trusted Him, trust Him. He's worthy. He alone is worthy. But where is this place, this heavenly city that God has prepared for us who belong to Jesus Christ because we have trusted in Him alone? Well, in a couple of the same passages we were just talking about, there are other things that must not go unnoticed. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. From which? See, the final chapter of God's amazing plan of redemption is not about us going to Him. It's about Him coming to us. The cursed earth that we live on right now is not our home. But beloved, the redeemed earth that is certainly coming is certainly our home. And it will be our home forever. Right now, our treasures are indeed laid up somewhere beyond the blue in heaven where God dwells. But the place in which we will dwell forever with Christ isn't up there. It's down here in the new redeemed Jerusalem that's going to come down out of heaven from God to earth. To the new redeemed earth. Not this one. To the new redeemed earth. Now that's exactly what God showed to John the Apostle in Revelation 21 verses 1-3. through He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. He said, and I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Now let me stop right there and say, when God raises His voice, do you think we should be listening? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! That's another thing that should get our attention when God says, Behold! The tabernacle of God is among men. And He shall dwell among them. And they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be among them. This amazing holy city that's described throughout Revelation 21 and 22 is going to come down out of heaven from God and God is going to live in it with us. The declaration that God will come and live right in the midst of His people in this city is declared three times in one verse. That's another thing that should get our attention. So far, we have God raising His voice, saying, Behold, and repeating Himself three times. You think we should be paying attention. At the beginning of John 14, Jesus told His disciples when He was about to be betrayed 
and crucified, betrayed into the hands of his executioners and crucified just before. He told his disciples he was going to prepare or make ready a place for them and for us. So that, in Jesus' words, where I am, there you may be also. Us with Him. Emmanuel. Him with us. Since He left, He's been getting that place ready. So that both He and we can live in it together. And according to Revelation 21, verse 2, the place that Jesus has been making ready for us is going to get relocated. It's going to come down out of heaven from God to where? To the new earth. In John 6, Jesus used that same phrase, come down out of heaven from God. He said He's the true bread out of heaven. The bread of God that comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. When He came out of heaven the first time, He came to pay the eternal penalty for our sin at the cross. If you'll pardon the oversimplification He came down from heaven to purchase heaven for us. And He's going to come down out of heaven again. And when He does, He's bringing heaven with Him. Will we live in heaven in eternity? Yes. The place where God dwells is heaven. Passage after passage declares that both Testaments. Will we live on earth in eternity? Yes. God created man from the earth to dwell on the earth and to oversee the earth. Heaven and earth are going to be made one. Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about the culmination of all things in Jesus Christ that is surely coming. He says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. And I'm going to go to New King James Version for verse 10. I love the way it renders it. It says that, in order that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ. The things in heaven and the things on earth. In the one. In Christ. That's exactly what God showed John in Revelation 21 and 22. The gathering together of all things in Jesus Christ. Both the things in heaven and the things on earth. God is going to make the heavenly realm and the earthly realm one realm. He's going to reconcile them. And He's going to live here with us. Randy Alcorn says, just as the wall that separates God and mankind is torn down in Jesus, so too the wall that separates heaven and earth will be forever demolished. Now let me ask you this. What makes a place, a physical place, holy? You guys are way ahead of me. In Exodus chapter 3, what was it that made the barren top of Mount Sinai holy when Moses saw God in the form of the burning bush? God said, take off your feet, your, your sandals, Moses, for the place upon which you are standing is holy ground. And what made it holy was the presence of God. That's what makes any place holy. That's what makes us holy. When all is said and done, we won't dwell with Him up there. He's bringing what He's been preparing up there down here. 
He's going to dwell right in the midst of His redeemed place, New Jerusalem, on His redeemed earth, in the midst of His redeemed people. It's going to be the reversal of the curse in every respect. Eden restored. Only way better. We'll talk about the way better part over the next few weeks. Let me just flip through these real quick. Uh, I'm not going to read these. These are some Old Testament passages that corroborate the same idea. Over and over when God says that He's coming back, He says He's coming back to dwell in the midst of His people in Jerusalem. Ezekiel 37, Zechariah 8. I love this one. I will return to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Behold, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east and land of the west. I'm going to bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, but the new earth that that passage is talking about is a completely different earth than this earth. After all, Revelation 21.1 also says, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. You may also be thinking, come on Tom, haven't you read 2 Peter 3? It says that God's going to utterly destroy this earth and start over from scratch. I believe that would be a good statement if you drop the words utterly and from scratch. The idea of a new creation ex nihilo out of nothing does not appear to be what 2 Peter 3 or any other passage about our eternal dwelling place and God's eternal dwelling place is talking about. In 2 Peter 3, verses 7-13, through 13, there's some very, very powerful language. It says, By God's Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. A few verses later, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. He's repeating Himself again. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Those are powerful, violent words that speak of a cataclysmic judgment. A judgment that will melt the very elements of the earth with intense heat. And the practical, the very practical impact of understanding what God is saying here is precisely that we will not be attached to this world as we know it. Because the things that we do know in it are going to burn up. But is the destruction that God is talking about in that passage annihilation? Do those words mean that nothing will be left of this physical universe when God has finished dispensing His judgment? I believe the key to understanding what Peter means by the word destroy is right here in this same passage. In the earlier verses of 1 Peter 3, Peter also uses the word destroy. He's talking about when godless men in his day, he's talking about that, the fact that godless men in his day had concluded 
that God was never going to come back to judge because things just kept going on the way they had always been going on ever since the beginning of creation. And he said, you got this very badly wrong. He said, when they think that way, verse 5, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed. Same word. Being flooded with water. His point is that even the things that men saw around them in his own day had already been destroyed once in the great flood of Noah's time. Genesis 6 talks about God's intention beforehand when that destruction was imminent. God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before Me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am going to destroy them with the earth. So Noah, make yourself an ark. When God destroyed the earth and all flesh that dwelled on the earth in that great flood, did the earth cease to exist? Did all flesh cease to exist? John chapter 2, after turning the money, the money changers' tables over in the temple, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these crazy things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's the same word for destroy. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? Verse 21 says Jesus was speaking of the temple of His body. When He was raised from the dead, His disciples finally figured out what He was talking about on that day. And when the Jews destroyed the temple that Jesus was talking about, did that temple cease to exist? Not according to Jesus. In Luke 24, when He appeared to the gathered disciples after His resurrection from the dead, they were startled. They were frightened. They thought they were looking at a ghost. And He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See My hands? My feet? That it is I Myself. Touch Me and see. Touch Me. He's saying, even physically, it's still me. He was raised bodily from the grave. Anybody that denies the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ denies Christianity. God told Israel over and over in the Old Testament that if they persisted in their sin, He would destroy their cities and their land and He would destroy them. But He also declared over and over that He would not destroy them utterly. He would not annihilate them. I hope you're seeing a pattern here because it's pretty consistent. When God says in 2 Peter 3 that He's going to destroy the earth by fire, does that mean that the earth will cease to exist? Our Lord's own use of the word destroy over, over and over does not lend itself to be interpreted as annihilation. It's a word that speaks of devastating, desolating, Judgment that removes everything that does not belong in order to renew what does belong. Romans chapter 8 goes a long way toward clarifying what God has planned for His physical creation.
creation. See, He doesn't just have a plan to redeem us. He has a plan to redeem it. Romans 8, the, the chapter starts talking about the, the, the mindset on the Spirit rather than on the flesh. About our freedom from the old man. Then it starts talking about our adoption as sons. As heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And it talks then about our adoption day. The day that's coming when we will fully enter into all that belongs to us as adopted sons of God. And that's what Paul calls glorification day. You should be looking forward to that day. It's going to be a very big deal. He says, For I consider, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation, the creation, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it. In hope. It was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is an amazing state. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we, if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. Now, there's a lot there, but here's what I want, to, want us to, to notice. <laughs> According to Paul, for what event is all of creation eagerly waiting. Is it eagerly waiting for its annihilation? No. It is anxiously, eagerly awaiting its liberation from the curse of our sin. It's waiting for the day when creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. So what was it that brought upon all of God's physical creation the curse of death, decay, and corruption, and futility? We did. It wasn't the rest of God's creation that sinned. It was us. It was us. Mankind. It isn't creation that's evil. It's us. See, we think... Man, won't it be nice when God finally frees us from this cursed world and we get to go home? It would be much more biblically accurate to say, won't it be nice when God frees this cursed earth from us? From the catastrophic curse that our sin brought down upon all of it by the hand of God. And more accurate still would be to say, won't it be nice when God frees this earth from the curse of our sin by freeing us once and for all from the very presence of our sin. That's what glorification day is. 
and when He then once again makes this earth His home and ours. Redeemed earth. It's exceedingly important to recognize that creation is not waiting and longing for its glorification day. Creation is waiting and eagerly longing for our glorification day. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the unveiling of the sons of God. And the whole passage makes it clear that the glorious future event that it's talking about is our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. I can hear the gears turning out there. Some of you are thinking, but wait, is he saying that we won't be resurrected until the new heaven and the new earth are ushered in? Isn't he forgetting a thousand years between those two events? Look, I know that some of us differ on this. I do believe there's going to be a millennial reign, a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ here on earth before God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. But I'm not talking here about a timeline. I'm talking about how God's redemption and renewal of one thing, one aspect of His creation, namely us, is inextricably tied His redemption and renewal of another aspect of creation, which is all the rest. In short, I'm not talking about chronology. I'm talking about connections. God certainly has a schedule for making all this come to fruition. But honest, godly men differ on the schedule. I think we get too consumed with the timeline and sometimes we lose the bigger and far more important principles of what God is working to bring about. Like this principle, for instance. The unbreakable connection between our redemption and creation's redemption exists because of God's design for our agency. Both God's curse on His physical creation and God's redemption of His physical creation are tied to our agency over His creation as His image bearers. The earth and all of creation was cursed because man who had been given dominion over it on God's behalf sinned and was cursed. It wasn't cursed because it sinned. And because of that same dominion and agency that has always been at the heart of God's intention for man, the earth and all of its creation are going to be redeemed, made new, when our redemption is complete. Does that make sense? What happens with it depends on what happens with us because we are the stewards of it by God's design. Every residue of the curse of our sin is going to be removed from every corner of God's creation because God is going to make His appointed stewards over that creation new. That's why creation is waiting for our redemption. Another critical point is that the template for all of God's work of redemption and renewal is Christ's resurrection. Y'all know what a template is? It's like a pattern that you use to duplicate something over and over. At least once. <laughs> Another hugely important principle in all of this is that the template for every bit of God's work of redemption and renewal is Christ's own resurrection. His bodily resurrection is the indispensable bedrock of all of God's work to redeem all things. 1 Corinthians 15 says Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and that we who are Christ's will be made alive when? 
at His coming. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Ours proceeds from and is based on His in every respect. And that same marvelous chapter tells us that our physical bodies, like His, will not be annihilated. That which has died will be redeemed. That which was cursed will be transformed. In the twinkling of an eye, these cursed, corrupt, dying bodies are going to be changed and raised honorable, immortal, and imperishable. These bodies. And just as our resurrection is based on Christ's resurrection, the renewal, the new life of all of creation is based on our resurrection because we're the agents. We're the stewards. The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the unveiling, the revealing of the sons of God. Randy Alcorn puts it this way, and I have read multiple other books on this topic, but I keep coming back to his because he has a just wonderful way of putting things. The earth's death, the, the earth's death will be no more final than our own. The destruction of the old earth in God's purifying judgment will immediately be followed by its resurrection to new life. Earth's fiery end will open straight into a glorious new beginning. And it will just keep getting better and better. Beloved, the grand finale of the Bible is the grand opening of eternity. Now here's another question. When God destroys this old cursed earth and the whole cosmos with it, will there be any continuity? Will the new heaven and the new earth have any resemblance or connection at all with this one? Well, is Jesus still Jesus both in His humanity and in His deity? Yes. Will Eric Dula still be Eric Dula in eternity? Yes. He'll be Eric all cleaned up. Purged of every vestige of sin and of the curse. Transformed from mortal into immortal and from perishable to imperishable. Eric made new. And in eternity, we will live on this earth that has been all cleaned up, purged by God's refining fire of every vestige of the curse, transformed from corrupt and decaying and resistant to man to gloriously filled with life and completely in harmony with man. Does any of this really matter now? Is there actually any benefit to knowing that we'll spend eternity here on a redeemed, renewed physical earth instead of somewhere beyond the blue in an entirely otherworldly place? Yes. First, it matters because it's woven right into our hope in Jesus Christ. And that hope is the anchor of our souls. Romans 8 is perhaps the most focused declaration in the Bible concerning the marvelous hope that sustains us in the midst of tribulation, persecution, and injustice in a fallen and cursed world. And at the heart of that powerful chapter, is God's clear declaration about what He is going to do not just with us, but with all of creation. 
our glorification day will be its glorification day. God wants us to know the incomprehensible power of His redemption of us. How many movies have you seen about somebody wanting to save the world? God is going to redeem this entire world, the whole cosmos, the whole universe by redeeming us fully. He wants us to know that our redemption in Jesus Christ is absolutely central to every detail of His glorious plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. When we look further at God's renewal of our image and agency in a couple of weeks, we'll give a lot more attention to how the work of redemption that God has already accomplished in us is going to or is supposed to impact this world right now. It also matters that God will concede no part of His original design. Not one part of it. No part of what God originally intended for creation or for mankind will be conceded to Satan. It will all rightly be submitted to Jesus Christ. That is why we have cause to be convinced along with the Apostle Paul that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, depth, depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The reason we're overcomers of all that stuff is because the redemption that God has wrought for us redeems it. It overcomes every every aspect, every part, every corner of the curse in this creation. So how could this overcome us? It's not possible. Yet another reason that this matters to us now is is this. Knowing that God intends to redeem and restore the earth, the whole physical universe, rather than annihilating it and starting over, goes a long way toward protecting against us from one of the oldest and most nefarious heresies in the history of the church. The heresy that says that the physical realm is completely divorced from the spiritual realm. That they have nothing to do with each other. I and many others call it Christian dualism, that heresy. Randy Alcorn calls it Christoplatonism because it's a Christianized redo of the teachings of the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. In the early church, there were two extreme manifestations of this error and, there, and lots of other manifestations in between those extremes. Those same essential heresies exist in vivid color today. The first is, was then called Stoicism, which holds that the physical realm is the enemy of the spiritual realm. A group called the Gnostics embraced this understanding along with some other groups. They believed that meaning and godliness exists only in the spiritual realm because all physical things are evil and they are in opposition to the pure and spiritual and holy things. So any attention that we pay to physical things and any pleasure that we derive from physical things is sin. But it's very important for us to understand that cursed 
is not equal to evil. We're cursed because we're evil. Creation was cursed for the same reason. Because we're evil. Not because creation is evil. In fact, when God created all this, He looked at it and He said, it's very good. Romans 3 says there's no person who's good. But Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling right now of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Of what? Of Him. 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, the Spirit explicitly says in later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now listen to what the doctrines of demons are. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified, it is made holy by means of the Word of God and prayer. The many good things that God has given to us in the physical realm are intended to be submitted to God and to produce gratitude toward God. The spiritual and the physical are not two opposing realms. The spiritual governs the physical. It determines what we do in the physical. But God designed the two realms to be together, to work together. Sex is not evil. Wine is not evil. Even the last New York strip steak I had was not evil. Taking time to enjoy a beautiful landscape. Even gasp, noticing the beauty of a woman's face or form are not evil. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received on God's terms with gratitude, sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. See, His Word tells us how to receive the stuff that He has given to us. We know how to live if we're paying attention to what He's revealed. It's not a mystery. It's not rocket science. Every transforming thing in the Bible is simple. Theologians argue over stuff that doesn't change lives all that much. The stuff that does change lives, a six-year-old can understand. Everything God made and set before man, He made to point our hearts to Him and to use for His glory and His honor. That's pretty straightforward. The second extreme version of Platonic dualism in the New Testament times was called Epicureanism. A perverse philosophy that holds that because the physical realm is completely disconnected from the spiritual realm, you can do whatever the heck you want to in the physical realm. Whatever floats your boat. You can eat, drink, and be merry in the physical realm and, and still be holy in the spiritual this heresy persists in grand fashion today because it's a wonderful and convenient dodge that allows us to indulge ourselves at will. There are young believers 
living with each other without the benefit of marriage and going to church every week, raised in Christian churches, and they're doing this because they think they can pigeonhole their spiritual life over here and do whatever they want to over here. And God doesn't care. Of course, all of this completely flies in the face of hundreds of commands and exhortations in Scripture that tell us that everything that we do in the physical realm must proceed from faith in God and from the love of God that works itself out in love for our neighbor. We are to be holy because the Lord our God is holy. God gives us great liberty in Christ to partake of all kinds of food and drink and other physical provisions, good things that He's given us on His terms. He commands us always to temper that liberty with love for our brother because love love trumps everything else. By God's design, the physical realm is neither irrelevant to the spiritual nor is it opposed to the spiritual. The physical and the spiritual are so woven together that you cannot talk about one without talking about the other if you're talking biblically. The curse of death extended to both realms, the physical and the spiritual, and the blessing of resurrection life will extend to both realms. There is a marvelous harmony. And by the way, if you don't believe that the curse has impacted both realms, read Ephesians 6. The angels fell separately from us, but man, we gave them a lot to do. We gave those demons a lot to do. We gave the good angels a lot to do too when we fell. There is a marvelous harmony between spiritual and physical, both in God's original design in Eden and in everything that God has told us about the coming restoration. The new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And we who are already citizens of that coming kingdom are called to live in a manner that submits both realms entirely to Him with no contradiction between the two. Because He's going to make the two one. We are here to show off our King and we're here to give previews of His kingdom. We'll talk a lot more about that next time when we talk about the point of the place. For the sake of a little balance, let me say this. In Colossians 2, Paul says that all of the things that we see now around us, that we see and touch and taste, are destined to perish with the using. They are under the curse. They have to die to be redeemed, just like we did. We who are looking forward to resurrection bodies and a redeemed earth have no reason to invest much in the unredeemed versions of either. Let me say that again. We who are looking forward to resurrection bodies and a redeemed earth have no reason to invest much in the unredeemed versions of either. Things that are destined to perish and to be transformed into far better things are not worth losing any sleep over. If I scatter blue bonnet seeds in my backyard and they blossom magnificently, I'll enjoy them and I'll praise God for one little homegrown sample of all the beauty that He has given to us to behold. But if I scatter those same seeds and we end up having round five of our four-year Texas drought, and they never make it beyond seed stage, no big deal. The same applies to the fruitfulness of my financial investments, the fruitfulness of my efforts to maintain the health 
of my body, the fruitfulness of my auto repairs, the quality of my vacations, and hundreds of other things under the sun. Whether they prosper marvelously or wither on the vine, none of them is worth a moment's anxiety. But the fact that physical material things are destined to perish before they get redeemed does not mean that they're evil. This is the balance I'm talking about. They are not forbidden to Christians. Abstaining from enjoying the good things God has made on His terms and and rather vigorously telling other people that they need to abstain from them, God says are entirely pointless and empty pursuits. They accomplish nothing in either realm, physical or spiritual, that is of real value. According to Paul, our holy checklists about what we can and cannot handle and taste and touch have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. We need to stop getting torqued about things that just don't matter much. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all that you need will be added to you. We are looking for, we are looking for and we are living for a far, far better city. Our hope is there, not here. We should not expect to find fulfillment here. We live to advance the coming kingdom, not the kingdom or kingdoms of this world. And as well, we will consider more thoroughly next time, our goal is that wherever we find ourselves at any time, we are to be about pleasing our Redeemer. He alone is worthy of our trust. He alone is worthy of our affection. He alone is worthy of our obedience. Let's be about that. Loving Father, thank You for this body. I thank You for the prayers of this body for me and my wife, my family. I thank You for showing off in all kinds of different ways. Lord, make us, make us instruments to adorn the doctrine of our great God and Savior by our lives, by all the things that we do. Teach us to live as citizens of a far greater place that's coming and You're coming with it. Dear Father, we look forward to that day when the God who dwells in unapproachable light is going to come and dwell right in the midst of us. And we say again, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.